afternoon. Good afternoon, everybody. It's just afternoon. And uh, it's very nice to be together uh, in the silence, the healing silence, which helps us to uh, really appreciate <coughs> the joy of Hanukkah and the light. So I want to talk about Hanukkah, but before I do that, <clears throat> I want to continue what Dorothy has already started to just take a moment to uh, practice together grief and remembrance, because I don't think you have joy by <clears throat> pushing away the sorrow and the trouble. The only way you really have joy is by including it if it's there. So, I want to start there. And also, uh, somehow, bring into our hearts the, the actual presence of Joan, our dear friend and, and a founding member of our Makor or community that's so precious to us. And Joan was there from the beginning. He lost her on Friday afternoon, just before Shabbat, November 24th. Mark was there for weeks. Justine and Craig, their children, were there. Probably all of you knew Joan, an amazing human being, full of energy. Big person, you know, living life big, wanting more life all the time. Did amazing things, amazing things. 100-mile marathon. That's ridiculous. Uh, whoever heard somebody running a 100-mile marathon, 24 hours running. And wanting to stay alive as long as she could. And, and when it was time not to be alive anymore, she was okay with it. She had a beautiful ending, if such a thing is possible. last time we met here was in August, and Joan and Mark were here sitting. Joan was in that space next to Mark. And just about this time of the day, I was giving my talk and looking up, and there was Joan, who was really sick and didn't have a lot of energy, beaming and smiling, thrilled, you know. And, and then they had to leave early because, you know, she wasn't feeling well. And, and before they left, Joan came up and gave me a big hug and how much she enjoyed the retreat in the morning. So as long as Makor Or exists, which I hope will be a long time, Joan will be here. So I, I'm dedicating my talk today. Joan's memory, which I hope will be a blessing for all of us forever. 
and the sorrow for Joan's passing can't be separated now from the sorrow that we're all feeling for the suffering in Israel, in Palestine. We all have probably friends, relatives maybe, who live there. But we're here in safety. It's very hard to really and truly imagine what it must be like to be there. So close to the deaths of soldiers, of civilians who were massacred, you know, running out from a, a rave, shot down, women who were raped, and as Dorothy mentioned, hostages uh, still in captivity. I, I've been actively trying to you know, imagine it, bring my heart to it. And then finally, one of my friends there, who's a writer, uh, was able to really describe her feeling and her experience in a way that it just came home to me. She said, uh, right now, I cannot experience beauty. I cannot experience happiness. And it's really hard to feel any compassion for the other side when your own suffering is so searing. And I kind of can see in the responses of my friends and relatives that some of what they're feeling, in addition to all of this, is a tremendous sense of aloneness. Because it seems like no one, including many of us, American Jews, they think, they feel, are, are really sympathizing, really feeling what they're feeling. So that's hard. That's kind of new, in a way, for them. And then again, as Dorothy mentioned, the people in Gaza, they say 80% of the people there are dislocated. It's hard to believe, you know, even imagine what that would be. Where, where did they go? You know, the other 20% are putting them up? I mean, where could they be? How is it possible? And all the places that are destroyed and the people who have been killed and children with no end in sight for them. So the whole thing is really uh, too much for everybody in the world. May, may, the, may the horror of it all soon come to an end. It's hard to face this and, uh, you know, you, you really feel like you have to protect yourself from letting in what you feel. So 
right now, I think all of us together in the silence can at least for a moment, and let's do this, helping one another, leaning on one another, let's take a few breaths to feel everything we're feeling. We can feel these things and survive. We will feel these things and survive. Among the many calls and conversations I've had since this began, the saddest one was from a young friend of mine, a mother, who has a five-year-old son. And she said to me with such anguish, you know, I, I so want to pass on to my son how great Judaism is. You know, how beautiful it is, uh, the feeling of community, our beautiful traditions, the depth of Jewish spirituality. And I so wish there was a way to do this without all the rest of this pain. I can't bear, you know, giving my son all of this pain. Isn't there a Judaism beyond all this pain? Is there any Judaism beyond this? I hope so. I really hope so. In a way, I think that's what we're doing in the core or is practicing that aspirational Judaism and yet it's impossible to ignore the fact that from the very start, Judaism has been formed by defeat, exile, lamentation. It's always been a struggle to be Jewish, which is our name, right? Those who struggle with God. But I was thinking, you know, this goes both ways. We struggle with God. God is struggling with us. God is struggling to bring about the just and peaceful world we have imagined through our texts and commentaries over the generations. It's Judaism that imagines a just and peaceful world. God's struggling with that. 
And when we see the suffering of our people through these many, many generations, even into the present, we're looking at a record of God's great struggle. And that's why you can have hope. Because it's not just our struggle. It's God's struggle, too. So even though we may not be capable of figuring it out, God can figure it out. So I think even when there's nothing you can imagine, you know, that works out, something can work out. I believe it. I had another conversation with a close friend who's somebody my age, a woman who is really angry and upset about what's happening. She grew up with a really, I would say the word is cruel mother, Jewish mother, which caused her, as soon as she could get out of the house, to leave and, and abandon Judaism and become a good Buddhist. And she's been angry ever since about uh, Judaism and the way it appears to her. And she is marching, you know, for the Palestinian cause, thinks Zionism is a terrible mistake. And we had a great conversation about this, and I can really appreciate her point of view, although I don't share it. And we had a good talk. And it's kind of amazing, you don't, you don't think of it, but of course everybody knows how true it is that the way you look at things, the way all of us look at things, comes from our early conditioning. We didn't ask for that conditioning. But that's how it is for us. So we have to be patient with ourselves and with one another. Makes no sense to blame anybody for the way they feel. And you can't talk anybody out of the way they feel. Seems pretty true to me that, and I said this to my friend, to go on and on with grief and bitterness, to be stuck in that forever and ever, even if events seem to justify it, can't work. It just can't, because it eats you up alive from the inside. Maybe when things are bad enough, you have to feel these things for a long time, longer than you would like, before it's time to let go of them. But you do have to let go of them sometime. So it's interesting, it's Hanukkah right now, we're celebrating the great military victory. Yay, we've defeated, amazingly, you know, the Hasmoneans defeated the Greeks. 
But always Rabbi Lu would say at Hanukkah that the rabbis didn't really like that idea. That was not what the rabbis were trying to do with Hanukkah. Actually, they didn't like the Hasmoneans, the rabbis, you know, because the Hasmoneans became not so great, you know, after they had their great victory and, and took over, the Hasmonean dynasty was not the most brilliant moment in Jewish history. So the rabbis would rather not emphasize their victory, but instead would rather emphasize God's victory, which was not a military victory. It was a victory of bringing light into the world in a dark time. And that's what Hanukkah is about. They turned a holiday, that a commemoration that was originally all about might into a celebration of light. Good idea, I think. So I'm just back last night from our annual uh, Zen meditation retreat, seven-day Zen meditation retreat in Mexico. And uh, this last Shabbos, just a couple days ago, was the second night of Hanukkah. So everybody in the retreat lit Shabbos candles. They had a whole bunch of like tea candles, you know, and we all, everybody, everybody in the retreat lit Shabbos candles after having lit with, we had a couple of menorahs, we lit Hanukkah candles and lit Shabbos candles and said all the blessings for everything. And it was really beautiful and really moving to see so many lights. There must have been, I don't know, how many, 60 candles or more. And everybody was included, although it turned out that there happened to have been quite a number of Jewish people at this particular uh, retreat, more than usual. There's always a lot of Jewish people, you know, at meditation retreats. but There were more than usual this time. And um, this is, to me, like, really amazing. One of the people there, somebody I'd never met before, had been, years ago, the assistant chancellor of the Jewish Theological Seminary. And in that position, he was on the committee that was considering the application of a young man from California who wanted to be admitted in an unusual way into JTS, uh, Alan Liu. He was on the committee that interviewed, can you imagine that? And he said he was a very unusual and very inspiring candidate and we accepted him easily. I was so astonished to hear this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then also uh, there were a number of people that I did know who uh, had participated many times with Rabbi Lou in our retreats. Uh, Jeff, Jeff was there and Brian and many others. And uh, so at the end of the retreat, we kind of sat around talking about Alan and our memories of him. 
and he was very much with us. So, it's good to be here today. So, now Hanukkah. And I'm going to bring up some teachings that I really love about Hanukkah. I've spoken about them before from Rebbe Nachman, who everybody knows from the, uh, you know, the legendary, mystical, deeply weird Rebbe Nachman. who was from the uh, late 18th, early 19th century in Eastern Europe, which was a really powerful period in our history, well, maybe a high point of Jewish spirituality. His most famous text never existed because uh, he wrote it and it was never published. Nobody ever read it. And, and, then he, and then it was burned. So it's called the burnt book, and it exists only in legend. No one, there, no one has ever read it. However, we do have lots of stories that he told orally, you know, and, and that were written down. And we also have uh, a text of his sayings and writings, or sayings written down, which you can find astonishingly translated into English on Seferia, so I can read Rebbe Nachman on my telephone. So I'll, I'll share a few passages. <clears throat> this is Rebbe Nachman's words. I guess filtered through various hands, but anyway, Rebbe Nachman. Through the mitzvah of kindling the lights on Hanukkah, we acknowledge the glory of God. God's glory is exalted and magnified in the world with the lighting of the lights. Those who are distant from God are stirred by these lights to return. And by lighting the lights, we attain true fear of heaven, that's one thing, harmony in the home, and genuine prayer. Strife and malicious slander are banished, and universal peace spreads in all the worlds. That's the virtue of lighting the Hanukkah lights. Which is, of course, as we know, the main practice of Hanukkah. We light Shabbos candles, but that's just the beginning of a whole lots of other mitzvot that follow. But I think on Hanukkah, the main thing is just lighting a light. So in a certain way, the lighting of the light is very potent on Hanukkah. And, and it, it acknowledges the power of God in the darkest time of year, the light in the darkest time of year. And we, and we really need that now. So, lighting the candles wakes us up, inspires us, moves us beyond ourselves. And light is a kind of magic. Fire is magic. I mean, can you imagine the first person who saw that there could be fire? You know, what a thing. They must have been like shocked and staggering thing, fire. And when we light the candles, uh, as we will today, at Makor or retreats, we 
often sit there in silence and just watch them burn. We did this uh, the, the first night of Hanukkah, which wasn't Shabbos. We lit them after dark, and uh, we sat in the hall until the candles burned down all the way. I don't think we'll sit that long here, but a little bit. It's an amazing thing, and I really recommend that when you light them at home, instead of lighting the candles and going on to other things, you take a few minutes to just gaze at the candle flame. What is light anyway? The light of the candle, the, this light that lights up the world, there's no world without light, right? I'm not talking about spiritual light now or symbolic, metaphorical light. I'm talking about actual light. Sunrise. What is that? Light. What is light? My wife Kathy gave a talk in the retreat. She said, you know, we don't see anything. We don't see stuff. Actually, this is literally true. You don't see stuff. You see light. You see light bouncing off of stuff. That's how you know there's people and trees and everything, because light is bouncing off it. You don't see the things. You see the light. What is light? I don't think anybody actually knows really what light is. It's a kind of mysterious thing in the universe. And Einstein figured out that somehow it's a constant in the universe. It's not like other stuff in the universe, light. So light pervades the world. Light is the world. Maybe God is light, or light is God. Who knows? But I think that if you pay attention to light, literally, you do feel close to something beyond the ordinary. If you pay attention to light, you do, at least for a moment, forget your local woes and cares and come back to something more than that, that you really are. You expand. You include more. Your whole point of view opens up, as we were chanting, open up the gates of righteousness. That's the verse we always chanted after meditation at Makor Or in the beginning. So that's why the Rebbe says, when you light the lights, you will attain the true fear of heaven and harmony in the home and genuine prayer. You will attain these three things. So fear of heaven is a really important idea to Rebbe Nachman and in Jewish thinking. I don't really know what it means, but I'm, gonna, I'm never shy about telling you what I think something means, you know, even, even though I don't necessarily know. So uh, we know about a lot of you know, positive states of mind that we enjoy and that we like to cultivate. You know, pleasure, happiness, satisfaction, pride in our accomplishments or the accomplishments of people that we admire or love, the appreciation of beauty, lots of very positive emotions. But fear of heaven is another thing. It's a kind of 
feeling of awe, an awesome feeling that comes from understanding, even if you don't think of it this way, it comes from understanding that the whole world is like a speck of dust vanishing in a flash. And that one's own life is like a breeze that blows through the house for a moment, invisibly, and then it's gone. That breeze and that vanishing and that vastness is heaven. A world beyond this world and at the same time suffusing this world everywhere you look. This is not something you feel every day. But once in a while you do feel it. And it's not exactly pleasure or happiness, but it takes your breath away. It's a sense of awe. Sometimes in a more quiet way, you feel it in meditation. That's the silence I was talking about this morning. And that's why we value meditation. Because it really helps us to remember fear of heaven, in Rabbi Rabbi Nachman's sense. This is the presence of something more in our lives than we can see, or hear, or taste, or touch. And that's what they call the fear of heaven. And, like I say, in our sitting, sometimes in our chanting, we we get a glimpse of it. And that's why it's so important, I think, to return to these experiences over and over again, to prayer, to meditation. A lot of people practice it in nature. You know, looking at a tree, sometimes you feel it. You get uncentered from yourself. And you see that being alive is a much bigger and more mysterious question than you had thought. And it makes you humble. And it puts your problems in perspective. And it makes you really appreciative of everything. You begin to suddenly, uh, spontaneously say, you know, moda ani. You're grateful for everything. Less self-centered, less selfish. It's so natural, so compelling, you know, to be selfish. It's like we're taught that. Everything around us is telling us that. But it's really such a painful way to be. And when you're less selfish, because you have in you the fear of heaven, you have a happier home, right? You want to have an unhappy home, everybody in the household be selfish, you'll have an unhappy home. But when you have the fear of heaven, you're less selfish. Instead of being annoyed with all your family members and all the annoying things they for sure are doing, you can say, wow, you know, I'm really glad they're here. 
I'm really glad I'm not alone. I'm really glad there's love in this house. And if you don't have a household, if you're single, lots of people are single, you can appreciate yourself in a more unselfish way, right? You can do that. You can appreciate yourself in an unselfish way, not so focused on your needs and everything, but just, wow, here I am. I'm a human being. I'm alive. And that can create a loving home, even if there's no one else in it but you. We can be kind to ourselves when we have fear of heaven. And when there's fear in heaven, fear of heaven, and harmony in the house, the Rebbe teaches, then we have prayer. Then we give thanks. We want to give thanks. We want to offer praise. And we want to keep also an open channel for our lamentation. Because that's, that's one of the ways to pray, right? Is lamentation. To cry out, you know. This is horrible. Lamentation is a tried and true form of prayer. But if we're complaining and bitter, looking for somebody to blame, angry with God or with the universe for doing this to us, and that's it. That's not true lamentation. True lamentation cleanses the soul and deepens our fear of heaven and makes it true. So it's good to cry out in our grief and in our sorrow. And then he says, when there's fear of heaven, peace in the home, and true prayer, there's peace in the world. He says, in an end to maliciousness and hatred and resentment. What do you need to do to bring all this about? All you need to do is light the, the Hanukkah candles. That's what he's saying. That's what makes all this happen. May it be so, right? So that's the first passage from Rabbi Nachman. The second one. Through the mitzvah of kindling the lights of Hanukkah, we draw down the holy da'at, knowledge of God, da'at, knowledge, upon ourselves. He says, this da'at is the holy oil of memory, whereby a person at all times bears in mind that everything in this world, both in general and in particular, has meaning only in relation to the world to come. That's the da'at, that's the knowledge. So this is another astonishing... I think, uh, you know, I, I'm a conscious of the fact that uh, my appreciation, and maybe the same is true for you, of Rebbe Nachman only goes this deep, because Rebbe Nachman has a huge system, mystical system, underneath everything he says, and I'm not really... Uh, aware of it, so I, I'm just sort of skimming the surface. But anyway, when Rebbe Nachman uses the word da'at, I think there's a lot behind that. Knowledge, to know. He means a lot by that. The word uh, appears uh, in Genesis, 
uh, as the tree of knowledge of good and evil, da'at, to know good and evil, knowledge. And God is one, beyond good and evil, including both good and evil, and that's the tremendous mystery. So da'at in Jewish mysticism is the union of the ten spherot, a kind of mystical union beyond oneness and difference, inclusive of everything. So knowing God somehow, coming to a deep peace and acceptance of everything that happens in this world, is something that brings into one's life a tremendous peace. Even though you can't know God exactly the way you know your phone number or your password, but you somehow can have a sense of knowing. I guess Da'at is the light that pervades our spiritual path. It's what guides us through a lifetime of spiritual practice because we don't know really what we're doing, you know. We're trusting that light. And then, of course, that same word, da'at, is used, astonishingly to me, you know, in Torah, to indicate sexual union. So, Adam knew Eve. Adam and Eve knew one another, meaning they had sexual union. They cleaved to one another, flesh to flesh. So this is, to me, really something really strange and wonderful and hard to fully appreciate how in Judaism, sexuality and procreation and union with God and spiritual knowledge are all mixed up in one thing. And Jewish mysticism uses this kind of symbolism all the time. Song of Songs, you know, is all about this. Israel is the bride. God is the bridegroom. Body and spirit are one. So anyway, I'm just saying, there's a lot in this da'at that we will never come to the end of. And how do you get da'at to come down on your head? Light the Hanukkah candles. Pretty good. You know, you don't have to do a lot of like mystical things. Just light the candles, and it will come from above, and it will fall down on your head. And you know, uh, I, I think all of you understand that I am not the most observant Jew in the world, <laughs> right? So I, I do put on tefillin, though, one week a year, every day for a week. And so uh, one week a year, when I put on tefillin and I recite the verse, it, said, it has the word in a da'at. You will know, you put on the tefillin and you say, you will know God. May I know God. May I cleave to God. So this da'at now is the oil of memory oil in the lamps in the temple. He's calling here da'at, and he's calling it the oil 
of memory. The miraculous oil in the lamps of the temple is the oil of memory. Now memory is another idea with huge implications and meanings and we won't come to the end of understanding it in Judaism. That's what I think of my friends saying, there's so much in Judaism, can't we pass on Judaism to my poor innocent five-year-old son without all the tzuras? Can't I just have the oil and the lamp and everything and the da'at and the fear of heaven without the without the anti-Semitism? So memory. And, and you know, the word mindfulness, which comes from Buddhism, the word actually means memory. Mindfulness means to remember. Because we forget. It seems like we're built for forgetting and remembering. You walk across the room, you know, if you give somebody the, say, just remember God from the time you walk in the room till you walk out the other door. Just for that amount of time, just keep God in your heart. You can't do it. You'll think about something else, you know, before you get five steps in the room. Because we're built that way, you know. We think about everything else. We have so many experiences, and every experience we have causes thoughts and feelings. So you can't. It's hard. You have to keep coming back over and over and over again. Chuva is like basic. So memory, even including remembering our, our ancestors, remembering mitzvot, but remembering to be present is to return, to come back, to turn around again and again from our being caught to our being free because we're cleaving to God inside and out. We're remembering who we are and what we are and what the world is. So that's what we're doing when we light the Hanukkah lights. We're remembering who we are. We forgot. But we light the lights and we remember. And this is a challenge to remember Our life is so, there's so many things to do, and so many things that we are. You know, we're not just Jews, we're wives, husbands, mothers, fathers, lawyers, doctors, Indian chiefs. We're taking classes, we're thinking about this and that. We have so many bases to cover. When we light the lights, that's all there is in that moment. Our being Jews and all of the depth that that implies in a human life is all that counts. The rest of it, in that moment anyway, is gone. And then he says about that moment of bringing down Da'at and lighting the lights, he says, a person at all times bears in mind that everything in this world, both in general and in particular, has meaning only in relation to the world to come. That's what he says. 
the world to come, which sounds like you know an afterlife, a heaven, or something like that. But I, I don't think it's somewhere else, the world to come. The world to come, I think, is the world right in front of us, without our confusion, without all the confusion that we project onto it, without all the selfishness and all the grabbing and all the fighting. It's us and the world in front of us, stripped of all of our idolatry, our triviality, and our self-centeredness. That's the world to come, this world. So when we light the lights, maybe for the first minute, half a minute, maybe 30 seconds, 60 seconds, maybe even up to 90 seconds, when we're lighting and when we're singing, we are there. We're actually in the world to come, beyond everything. So I, I hope I'm psyching you up, you know, for the... Don't just, like, light the lights, you know, lighting and punching. Okay, we're supposed to do this, we do it, you know, on to the next thing. No, no, no. 30 seconds, 60 seconds, 90 seconds, for the next days, till the end of Hanukkah, let's all challenge ourselves to join the world to come for that long, at least. Maybe longer, I hope, would hope longer. But I think, realistically, 30 to, 30 to 90 seconds is possible to join the world to come. And in the world to come, of course, God is right there in everything. So the last little passages, he says, the days of Hanukkah are days of thanksgiving and praise. And thanksgiving and praise are the essence of the world to come. So even though we've got a lot of reasons to feel the darkness, there's light. And when we light those lights, we will remember that we are still alive. And it is really a miracle that we're still here when so many are not. We're still here and we still have one another. And that means that no matter what, we have within us the capacity to be really happy. And when we're happy, that itself is praise and thanksgiving to God. When we light those lights, knowing everything we know about what's going on, we can really be happy for that brief amount of time, and it's precious. And the last passage I'll read 
through this we are able to bring the sanctity and joy of Shabbat into the six days of the week. Then the simple unity of God is revealed. All these tikkunim are brought about by the kindling of the Hanukkah lights and the praise and thanksgiving which we offer on Hanukkah. How precious it is if you achieve this on Hanukkah and bring about these awesome tikkunim. So it's truly awesome, this simple thing, to light the Hanukkah lights. And we get to do it, not just once, or twice, eight times, for eight days. And we're going to do it today, together. And, and I know for sure that with all of us here, in our whole day of practice, definitely we will enter the world to come, for sure. And, and, uh, and, and the only thing is that try your best to take the day into the next days of Hanukkah so that every day, not just today, every day of Hanukkah will be that. And then, not to get greedy about this, but <laughs> if, I mean, I'm being totally serious here, if we could do this for the, all the way to the end and feel that, you know, for, I'm only saying like 30 to 90 seconds, but that would be precious, that's enough. Then, there's always Shabbat, right? Same thing. So then we can have that every week. Same thing. And I think if we have it every week in eight days for Hanukkah, and all the other times we light candles, maybe we won't forget it so quickly. Maybe we won't get so, you know, overcome by the wave of the world, which is so persuasive. But the world is not as strong as God. So we're never going to be lost. And every day during Hanukkah, at least the way we do it, there's more light every day until the end. So that's what I wanted to talk to you about today. So it's time for our lunch break, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what time do we come back? 2.30.